Good morning. If you're new here to the Sunrise Church family, we are pretty predictable as far as what we do on Sunday mornings. In the summer, we've been teaching through the Psalms, and this is a series that we started quite a few years ago. And that has brought us this morning to the second part of Psalm 78. Typically, we take just one Psalm per week. And so each summer, we take about 10 or so, depending on the schedule and what else is going on. And our plan is to go all the way through, all the way through to Psalm 150. This morning, we're breaking this one in two because it's a pretty long psalm. It's actually the second longest psalm in the collection of the psalms, in the Psalter, as we say. And it comes in at 72 verses. The longest is, of course, Psalm 119, which many of you would be familiar with, at 176 verses. And the psalms vary a lot. There's a lot of variance as far as the length of the psalms from 176 all the way down to a psalm like 117, which only has two verses. Some of you may be looking forward to getting to that one and thinking it's going to be a short sermon, but it probably won't be, but I like that optimism. So this morning we find ourselves in the second longest psalm and we're going to take the second half of that psalm. And this one is such an interesting one and just the way that it lays out, which I'll explain the structure here in just a moment. It interacts a lot with history, the history of Israel and how God has interacted with his people, the promises that he's made, his faithfulness. And if any of you have taken a little bit of a dive through history, sometimes it can be hard to distinguish what is actual history from mythology. And I know that many of you have probably studied this a little bit. I remember a few years ago, I was as I was going on a trip, I was trying to do a little bit of a dive on the history of Rome, the city of Rome. And as I read and looked at a few different books and resources and reading things online, almost it didn't seem to matter which resource I found. I always ended up coming across this story of Remus and Romulus, these twins who were allegedly raised by a wolf. And then Remus is, ends up being killed by Romulus, and Romulus founds the city of Rome. That's why we call it Rome, not Reem. That's because Romulus defeated Remus. And of course, this didn't actually happen, but it becomes part of the folklore and part of the myth and part of the legend, and even there's a city now named. Now, whether they were real people or not is perhaps debatable, but regardless, they were not twins that were raised by a wolf. I can speak to that pretty definitively. That didn't happen. So what is true, and when do you start getting the real history? That's what I was kind of looking for. Okay, what actually happened? And I think a lot of us, and maybe a lot of people, maybe not in this room necessarily, but a lot of people, they sort of treat the Bible like I treat the story of Remus and Romulus. It's like, well, that's a neat story that helps explain a name. Maybe it helps explain a worldview, but it didn't actually happen, right? We all know that God didn't actually like open a sea up and swallow people in it. He didn't actually open the ground and bury people. He didn't actually rain down fire from heaven. You don't believe all that stuff actually happened, do you? Well, I do. And the perspective of the Bible is those things did actually happen. And I would argue that unless we come to the place where we say this is true, these are facts, we really haven't understood the Bible rightly. And I think we hit major problems when we get to the New Testament, particularly around the resurrection of Jesus. Paul said, if this is not historically verifiable, there is no gospel. The whole thing falls apart. It had to happen. This had to happen. It has to be true. Or we really have nothing. We really have nothing at all. And so, with that in mind, what we have here 
in this psalm, it's really divided sort of into two wings, if you will. The first half was focused on the, after a call to listen and to remember and to not forget and to instruct these things to your children and your children's children to see this generational faithfulness of God's works passed down from one to the next to the next, this discipleship that takes place. Then he goes into telling the story. What should we remember? And he tells a story of Israel, and he tells a story about God's deliverance of Israel. And the first half focuses really on God's provision as he took his people out of Israel, and he does these miraculous acts, which we'll focus on this morning. And then he provides for them in supernatural ways by bringing water out of a rock, by bringing manna, this bread from heaven that they could eat by bringing quail that would come and, and just lay there for the people to come and gather for their meat. And he focuses on that and says, even in the midst of that, Israel still rebelled. And so God acted. So here's how it works. We're going to actually use the same outline because the psalm, as I said, there's sort of two wings to it. The first half of the psalm is a little bit longer than the second. So we see God's acts, that's recorded for us in 12 through 16, and then again, we have these acts in 40 through 55. The rebellion of the people, despite God's providence and his acts, 17 through 20, and then 56 through 58. And then we see God's response, 21 through 31, 59 through 64, and then God's grace that he shows to the people, 32 through 39, despite their rebellion, and then 65 through 72. So that's how the psalm breaks down. So... And just to show you what I'm talking about here, if you just glance down at Psalm 78, if you look at verse 12 of Psalm 78, it says this, in the sight of their fathers, he performed wonders in the land of Egypt, in the fields of Zoan. So you see that. Now go to verse 43. Let's jump over to verse 43. The second half when he performed his signs in Egypt and his marvels in the fields of Zoan. So it's almost identical, what we have, the retelling of the story. So first half and then second half. So let's look at it together. I want to read verses 40 through, 50, uh, 40 through 72, all the way through the end of the psalm to get the whole thing in our minds, and then we'll go back and look at this psalm in more detail. Verse 40, how often they rebelled against him in the wilderness And grieved him in the desert. They tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of Israel. They did not remember his power or the day when he redeemed them from the foe. When he performed his signs in Egypt and his marvels in the fields of Zoan, he turned the rivers to blood so that they could not drink of their streams. He sent among them swarms of flies which devoured them and frogs which destroyed them. He gave their crops to the destroying locust and the fruit of their labor to the locusts. He destroyed their vines with hail and their sycamores with frost. He gave over their cattle to the hail and their flocks to the thunderbolts. He let loose on them his burning anger, wrath, indignation, and distress, a company of destroying angels. He made a path for his anger, but he did not spare them from death, but gave their lives over to the plague. He struck down every firstborn in Egypt, the first fruits of their strength in the tents of Ham. Then he led out his people like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. He led them in safety so that they were not afraid. But the sea overwhelmed their enemies, and he brought them into his holy land, to the mountain which his right, which his right hand had won. 
He drove out the nations before them. He apportioned them for possession and settled the tribes of Israel in their tents. Yet they tested and rebelled against the Most High God and did not keep his testimonies, but they turned away and acted treacherously like their fathers. They twisted like a deceitful bow, for they provoked him to anger with their high places, and they moved him to jealousy with their idols. When God heard, he was full of wrath, and he utterly rejected Israel. He forsook his dwelling at Shiloh, the tent where he dwelt among mankind, and delivered his power to captivity, his glory to the hand of the foe. He gave his people over to the sword and vented his wrath on his heritage. Fire devoured their young men, and their young women had no marriage song. Their priest fell by the sword, and their widows made no lamentation. Then the Lord awoke as from sleep, like a strong man shouting because of wine. And he put his adversaries to rout He put them to everlasting shame. He rejected the tent of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loves. He built his sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth, which he has founded forever. He chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. With upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. Well, a lot going on in this psalm. I'm looking forward to diving into it a little bit more with you. So this relies heavily on the Exodus story, which we mentioned last time. And what we're going to see is that there's interaction with the plague events. You might remember the plague events from the book of Exodus recorded for us in Exodus chapter 7 all the way up through 14 when the army, Pharaoh's army, is finally destroyed. And if you've been here at the Sunrise family for a little while, we study the book of Exodus. This was in uh, 2017, 18, uh, quite a few sermons. We went through Exodus and we took apart each one of these plagues, almost one per week. We combined a few of them. And so we did take quite a bit of time. So I won't redo all of that for you, but just to remind you of what happened. So this is the flow of how the plague events turned out. You remember that God instructed Moses and Aaron to go warn Pharaoh, let the people go. And he told them up front, Pharaoh's not going to listen to you. So go let the people, go tell him to let the people go. Now, how about that for a mission, right? Hey, need you to go deliver this message. And you'll remember, what was Moses' objection? I'm not a good speaker. I'm not eloquent in speech. And I, as I read that story now, I look back and think, you already know that Pharaoh's not going to listen anyways. doesn't really matter if you're awesome at delivering the message or not. It's not going to work. So that's the plan, Moses. I need you to go warn him. Why? Because he needs to have a hardened heart so that I can do these awesome things that I'm going to do, these plagues. And so we have warnings, and you'll see the top line of the chart here. We have an escalation. We have warning, misery brought on the people, loss of health, livestock, uh, crops, and then ultimately death um, at the end. And so the two that are bold, the staff to serpent and the drowning of the army, those are both, they are outside of what we would call the 10 plagues proper, but they are also miraculous events that sort of, that, that sort of bookend what the Lord did. 
And so each one of these, you'll notice that I have some of them underlined. Those are the ones that have correspondence in our psalm today. So just wanted you to see all of them and how the progression works. And the psalmist did not choose to include all 10. I think he did that intentionally. He's writing for a specific purpose, but he does include these ones that are underlined. And so in the the verse that you'll see in the underlined text, that's where we see the correspondence here in our psalm this morning. So you'll perhaps remember these, the Nile, the river that's turned to blood, and I think something else is going on here as well, and I made this case when we were studying the book of Exodus a little while back. I think something else is going on that these aren't just random plagues that the Lord is doing. I think some of us read these and go, gnats? I mean, nobody likes gnats, but why gnats? Why frogs? Frogs aren't exceptionally scary, are they? Are you guys scared of frogs? I'm not, I'm not, I heard a yes over there. I, <clears throat> I understand. They don't particularly strike terror into me, frogs. They might be in the way or annoying, but they're not particularly fearful things. Well, I think each one of these, they're actually intentionally designed because of this. Exodus 12 and verse 12. And on the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. And so each one of these plagues, I think, are very intentionally designed to take down one of the gods of Egypt. The Egyptians were pantheists. They believed in many gods. There was a plurality. There's a whole pantheon of gods. And so each one of these plagues, God is saying, those aren't real gods. I'm the real God. And he's establishing his dominance over each one of these. And I think that's what's going on. Just one example, the Nile River, going back to our chart, the Nile River was thought to be divine in and of itself as it brought life to the Egyptian people. And there were three gods, the pantheon of gods that were associated with the Nile. There was Hopi, the bull god that was connected and thought to be sourced in the Nile. There was Isis, the goddess of the Nile, and then Kunum, who was also the guardian of the Nile. And so as the Egyptians are watching the Nile get turned to blood, they just took out at least three of their deities. Well, this water is no longer useful to you. Hey, guardian of the Nile, fix your river. And of course, they can't. And so each one of these, I think God is very intentionally showing them, I'm the true and awesome God. John Curid wrote a book, called Against Their Gods, and it's all about this, sort of exploring the context and history, and there's a, there's a lot more that we could say about that. We'll move on from that, but I think this is why. This is so significant for the people. So we're reminded of these ones. So the Nile turns to blood, verse 45. He sent among them, oh, that's 44, sorry. Uh, he turned their rivers to blood so that they could not drink of their streams, so that's Allusion to the Nile, verse 45. He sent among them swarms of flies, which devoured them, and frogs, which destroyed them. So this mass infestation of flies and frogs. 46. He gave their crops to the destroying locust and the fruit of their labor to the locusts. So the locusts that move in, and um, this is still an issue today in places where locusts could move in and just devour crops um, just almost overnight sometimes with massive swarms of locusts. I've often said that youth ministry looks like that sometimes. You'll have a whole spread of food in the kitchen, and then they just come through, and it's like, you know, it's just, all of a sudden, it's just gone. Like, there's, you know, 
a couple of chicken bones left from the wings and that's it. You know, stems from an apple or a grape or whatever. It's like, I feel like a herd of locusts just kind of move through the kitchen and now it's gone. And this is exactly what happened. Just overnight, it's gone. But they don't have the opportunity to run down to the grocery store and replenish. It's like if you lose your entire crop, you lose the harvest, it's gone. You've been defeated. You're in big trouble. So they lost part of their crop, at least, to the locust. But God's not done taking out their crops. He also took out some with hail, verse 47. He destroyed their vines with hail and their sycamores with frost, their trees and their vines, the grapes. He gave over their cattle to the hail and their flocks to thunderbolts. They're warned that this is going to happen, that there's going to be a massive loss of life And some of them heed the warnings. We learn that in the Exodus story, and many of them don't. He gave over their cattle, verse 49. He let loose on them his burning anger, wrath, indignation, and distress, a company of destroying angels. And this is moving us, he dedicates three verses here to the destruction of the firstborn. Verse 50, he made a path for his anger. He did not spare them from death, but gave over their lives to the plague. He struck down every firstborn in Egypt, the first fruits of the strength in the tents of Ham. So this was the final plague, of course. And it's where Pharaoh finally relents and says, fine, you guys get out of here. And his reliefs. So the psalmist is here reminding us of this story. Incredible story. I would encourage you, if it's been a little while since you've read through the book of Exodus, just start right around chapter 6, 7, and read up through the end of chapter 15, and just be reminded of the incredible things that the Lord did to bring his people out. It is quite a story. I'm just struck by it every time I read back through it. Well, let's move on. We see that God, he acts, he acts with these plague events. He takes out the gods of Egypt And then look at verse 53. So he leads them out, then he guides his people into safety so that they're not afraid, but then the sea overwhelms their enemies. He brought them to his holy land, to the mountain. The sea overwhelms the enemies. You remember, I told you last week that when Israel finally gets out, they finally leave Egypt. If you have Egypt here, it's on the North Africa, and there's a road that goes straight up to where Israel is now. Uh, there's, a, there's a road that kind of ran right up by the Mediterranean. Would have been a nice little drive along the Mediterranean up to Israel, but they didn't go that way. They ended up going south, and then they go kind of back to the west, and then they go east, and then they go down into the Sinai Peninsula there in Egypt, and so they're wandering around, and Pharaoh says, okay, they, they can't be on their own. I should never have let them go. Sends his army out. You guys go grab them, bring them back. They don't know what they're doing. They don't even know. They're trying to get up to the north and they just went south. Uh, This doesn't make any sense. And we know that the Lord intentionally did this so that they are put with their backs against the water. They're looking at the army that's been chasing them. And they're probably, God has probably brought them to sort of be hemmed in by the terrain as well with mountain passes. And they're, they're just stuck. They're stuck. And that's the opportunity that God uses in order to open up the sea, brings Israel through, and then he closes the sea on Pharaoh's army. I want to read Exodus 14, 28 through 31. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. 
of all the hosts of Pharaoh that followed him into the sea. Not one of them remained, the whole entirety of the army. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Now just imagine that experience. You're an Israelite. You've got an army behind you. You're servant, slave people. You're not trained warriors. You can't take on the army. And then all of a sudden, the sea opens up, and you're asked to walk through. Now, some of you would be like, this is awesome. And you're just taken off on dry ground, feeling the wall of water. How exactly that all worked, we don't know. We're not given a ton of detail. There's probably others, maybe the same people that are scared of the frogs, who would sort of have their, you know, their head buried in their neighbor's shoulder and just wake me up when we're on the other side, uh, just walking through in fear that this wall of water was about to collapse back on you. Regardless, regardless of whether you, you think this is great or whether you're scared to death of this whole situation, if you walked through the path, you were delivered. And that's what the Lord did. And of course, Pharaoh's army goes charging in, charging after him. As soon as they're all trapped at the bottom, the Lord causes the water to crash back on him. An absolutely incredible scene. So what we have in Exodus 14, we have the recording of the Exodus, the drowning of Pharaoh's army. Exodus 15 is then a poetic reflection. Moses writes a song about what the Lord has done, and that's Exodus 14 and 15. Read it this week. You'll be glad that you did. Incredible story of what the Lord has done. Israel sees all this, and they respond well. He drove out the nations before them for a possession. He settled their tribes in their, in their tents. So he jumps ahead pretty far into the story. They believe the Lord, and eventually he brings them into the land, and this is fast-forwarding a number of years, brings them into the land, and he sends his people to clear out the land. After many years of wandering in the wilderness because of their unfaithfulness, he sends his people into the land. And God does amazing things to clear out the land and to give them victory. We could talk for a while about all of the stories and the battles that Israel had, I think my favorite is the story of Jericho, a familiar story, where the Lord sends the, he sends the people, and the Jericho was known for its city walls, amazing city walls, this sort of impenetrable fortress. And God says, I want you to go and walk around the city for six days in a row. Just walk around it. Imagine the jeering that they would have gotten from the people on the wall that were calling out to them. And then on the seventh day, they're supposed to walk around it seven times, and then they're supposed to blow their horns, these instruments. So I love my band friends, but you don't exactly think of sending the marching band when you think special military operation, right? It's not typically how it works, but that's what the Lord does. He sends them, they blow their horns, the walls come tumbling down, God gives the city of Jericho to them. It's amazing. He drives out the nations. And so everything seems to be great and fine, right? Remembering God's acts, seeing what the Lord has done, seeing his deliverance at the sea, seeing the way that he's given them the land. And Israel lived happily ever after. That's how it goes. Not so much. We see rebellion against the Lord, distrust of God. And just the same as we saw it, in verse 17, just glance back at that just to see the parallel again. Verse 17, after he talks about God's provision of water in the wilderness, verse 17, yet they sinned, 
still more against him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. Now fast forward to verse 56. Yet they tested and rebelled against the Most High God, and they did not keep his testimonies, but turned away and acted treacherously like their fathers. They twisted like a deceitful bow, for they provoked him to anger with their high places. Remember that phrase. They moved him to jealousy with their idols. Despite God's incredible deliverance, the people still rebelled. The high places. It's an interesting little phrase there in verse 58. You see this a lot, actually, in the Old Testament. References to the high places. What were the high places? The high places were, they were areas, and they were typically elevated, like on a little mountain saddle or a a rock or an altar of some sort. And there were places that would be set up for the people to come and worship. And I kind of liken it, this isn't an exact parallel, obviously, but it's almost like a, like a hospital chapel room. It's like, well, who are you here to worship? And so a high place was sort of this nondescript place where people would go and make sacrifice and they would worship. Well, once Israel's in the land, once his dwelling place is established, they're not supposed to use these high places. And so kings would then the narrators often, especially in First and Second Kings, Chronicles as well, they often judge a king and at least part of their opinion of what kind of king this was is what they did with the high places. And this might seem completely foreign to you. I know that most of you are probably not tempted this afternoon to go home, build some sort of altar in your backyard and sacrifice something to it. That's probably not an extreme temptation for most of you. So maybe it's hard for us to sort of get into the flow of thought and what's going on here, but it was a major issue, major issue of having these false gods. And I think there's some application for us. We'll get to that in just a moment. Just to show you a few examples of this, Azariah, one of the kings, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, except that the high places were not removed. The people still sacrificed and burnt incense on the high places. So Azariah, good king, okay guy. You know what he did wrong though? He left those pesky high places. You shouldn't do that, Azariah. Jehoram, moreover, he made high places. He's telling us what he did wrong. He made high places in the hill country of Judah and led the inhabitants of Jerusalem into whoredom and made Judah go astray. Links Israel's idolatry to the high places. Hezekiah, on the other hand, is a good king. He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah. And he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. So this was the statue that Moses had built, or the the bronze serpent that was put up on the pole. You remember in Numbers when God sends the fiery serpents among them, and they're being bitten by these venomous serpents, and Moses creates this snake, bronze snake, holds it up on a stick, and they look to this, and they're healed. Well, all fine and good. The problem was they kept the thing and started sacrificing to it. They replaced God with this, just like what happened with the golden calf incident. They're replacing the true God with an idol. So that may, might seem distant from us. I don't think it needs to be, though. We may not be tempted in exactly the same way 
as the Israelites were. But could we also have our own little high places that we sort of reserve? Idols of the heart. Oh, I'm not gonna go back to that temptation. I'll never do that again. I'll never say that again. I'll never look at that website again. I'll never do this. Oh yeah, yeah, I know, I sinned, I did that. But maybe you just keep the back door open just in case. And in your mind, you're saying, I'm not doing that again. But in your heart, you're saying, but I'm gonna leave the option open in your heart. Keeping the high place. This is why Jesus said, don't leave any room for this. Leave no room for sin, Matthew 5, 30. He says if, just before this, he says if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. And then he says if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. That's pretty extreme. Jesus' point is not to physically remove your hand. His point is you really can't get too extreme with dealing with sin. Destroy the high places. Get rid of them completely. That's what Israel did not do. They kept them around. They kept building these places, worshiping something, giving allegiance to someone, something other than the true God. Again and again and again, it's Israel's story. It's our story as well. So we see God's acts, what he does. Then we almost immediately, in the Bible, we see rebellion. Then we see God respond to this rebellion. So what does God do? These verses aren't for the faint of heart. When God heard, he was full of wrath. He utterly rejected Israel. He forsook his dwelling at Shiloh, the tent where he dwelt among mankind. God acts decisively. I think what we have here is an allusion to events that happened in 1 Samuel. I mentioned last week that there was a change of location for the capital of Israel. Initially, it was in Shiloh, which was in Ephraim. So these are the tribes of Israel, and this was the land allotment. So we have Ephraim, and then right here where the red circle is, this is where Shiloh is. And so what happens is after Ephraim sins, Shiloh is ultimately rejected, and the capital is then moved, and the place of God's dwelling is then moved down here to Jerusalem. And that's where we see uh, God ultimately sort of moves his location down to Jerusalem. It takes a long time to develop, but that's ultimately what happens. Jeremiah, reflecting on this many years later, says, therefore I will do to the house that is called by my name in which you trust and to that place that I gave you and to your fathers as I did to Shiloh. Remember Shiloh's in Ephraim. And I will cast you out of my sight as I cast out all your kinsmen and the offspring of Ephraim. Ephraim is ultimately one of the tribes that's lost to history. And Shiloh, God's original dwelling place, is relocated. They lost that because of their disobedience to the Lord. So here's what happens in 1 Samuel. If you want to track the story, you can look at this one. So in Psalm 78, verse 60, we just read this. He forsook his dwelling at Shiloh in the tent where he dwelt among mankind. So he left there, and then he ends up going to Mount Zion. But he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loves. Judah being spoken of in a general sense, after the kingdom split, Judah refers to all of the south. So that's why we have that reference to Judah. So in 1 Samuel, we have the story, and it's an unfolding story that's quite dramatic in its own right. Eli's the priest, He and his sons are rejected 
by the Lord for their disobedience, for their immorality. It's pretty bad. You can read about that. Samuel is then called by the Lord. The ark is captured by the Philistines. It's taken away from the land of Israel. Eventually, they return the ark because God is doing incredible things in their cities, judgments against them. They say, you know what? Y'all can have your box back. Um, We don't want it here. And so they send it back to Israel, and the ark sort of gets stashed for years, like 20-something years. It just gets stashed in this little tiny village until ultimately David, and you'll notice this is 2 Samuel now. We've moved a long ways. David ultimately brings the ark to Jerusalem, which would be its resting place until the ark is eventually lost um, at the southern kingdom, when the, when the southern kingdom falls, lost to history. So David brings the ark back to Jerusalem, and I think this psalm is reflecting on all those events. There's a rejection of Ephraim and Shiloh. There's a rejection of the priesthood, an establishment of a new way. That's what God is doing. And the psalmist is writing to people who would have known these stories. They knew what was going on, and they knew how this was working. So God responds, and ultimately he moves his capital city out of Shiloh and down to this place, down to Jerusalem. So we see God's acts. We see a number of those, his miraculous acts. The people's rebellion, God responds. He responds in judgment, but he doesn't keep them in judgment forever. Look at his grace. Verse 65 Then the Lord awoke us from sleep, like a strong man shouting because of wine. We're given the picture that God wakes up and he is ready for action. It's as if the Lord awoke from his sleep. We know God doesn't actually sleep. He never sleeps nor slumbers. Psalm 121 tells us about this. He's always watching. He's always awake. But he let the people live in their disobedience. He let them feel the weight of their sin for a season of time. And then he acts. He acts exactly the right time, always in the right time. Sometimes it takes a long time for God to act. If you read the Old Testament, it can take a really long time. The Israelites cry out for a deliverer, and God sends a baby, Moses. Like, well, that's helpful, Lord, but it's going to take a while before he's really any use to us here. It takes a long time. God is slow, but he's never late. He's always on time. He's patient. We come to the New Testament, and we could say much the same. There are many people, this had been many, many years, were thinking, can you just send the Messiah already? Can we just get on with this? And yet the Lord, in the fullness of time, Galatians tells us. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. God sent Jesus at exactly the right time. He wasn't early, he wasn't late. This is instructive for us, isn't it? God is always on time. Many of us, I think, probably look around sometimes and think, what is going on in this world? What is happening? Is this place gonna last God is always on time. When is Christ going to return? I can't tell you exactly when Jesus is going to return, but I can tell you for sure he's going to return exactly on schedule. It's all part of the plan. 
Many people have tried to predict the exact timing of Christ's return. People like Harold Camping and others who have put a date on the calendar and said, this is when Jesus is going to return. Well, they've not been right yet, and they never will be right. When does this, when's this going to happen? It will happen exactly when the Lord intends it to. People are going to mock you for thinking that Jesus is coming back, especially when you start talking about some of the events around the second coming. People are going to say, you sure about that? Like Jesus, like Jesus, Jesus, like from the Bible stories, he's going to actually return to earth? Right, right, yeah, sounds likely. Peter dealt with this in the first century. It's not new. He said, knowing this, first of all, scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their sinful desires. They'll say, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. This, Jesus isn't coming back. You're crazy. You guys are nuts. I mean, and Jesus returning in a cloud. And you could just imagine the mockers saying, hey, big cloud. Wonder if Jesus is in that cloud. And here we are some 20-something years later after the ascension of Jesus, and they're already getting mocked for believing this. But they're forgetting a couple of things. They're forgetting about the Lord's activity in history, and they're forgetting about God's timetable as well. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance." When is Christ going to return? I have no idea, but it's going to be exactly when he intends to return. And he will, in fact, return. The Old Testament prophets warned us about some who say they want to see the day of the Lord, but yet these people should not long for the day of the Lord because for them it's going to be a day of judgment. And I would say the same for us. Yes, we want to see the return of Christ. Yes, we wait for this. But we have to recognize it's in his timing. And there's nothing we can do to speed up the process. But it's comforting to know that the Lord is in control. He's worked in history. Look at how he's, uh, how he's worked through Israel. Look at how he delivered his people. Look at what he's done in Christ. And then we also look forward to his return again. Let me pray for us. Father, we come today and we remember that you are God who has worked in history in the past. And Lord, we understand that you will come. You're coming yet again. And Lord, on that day, every eye will see, every tongue will be silenced. Everyone will recognize the King of kings and the Lord of lords is here. It'll be a clarifying day. Lord, you give us protection from your judgment, and that's through the person of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we do believe that this is true. We believe that Christ actually came. We believe he was real. We believe that he was the Messiah. We believe that he's defeated death. And now we believe that all those who place their faith and trust in him are given new life. They're given eternity with you. And so, Lord, as we engage this week in whatever task you have for us, help us to do those things with an eye towards the future, remembering that Jesus is, in fact, returning again. We praise things in Christ's name. Amen.